Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Eli. And, you know, it's funny. We're going to talk about something pretty cool today. Awkward money conversations. Sounds we may have sounds had one, awkward. We may have had one right before we started. We did. Yeah, we did a little bit. We won't discuss it on air, but it might be an awkward one. No, I was... I was told do not talk about that on our show, so I'm going to not talk about that on the show. When I think about this, though, there's really a couple of things that not just money, but in general, there's like three topics we're, we're told to generally avoid talking about with our friends or our family, and it's money, politics, and religion. Those are like three hot-button topics, and... You know, I understand if you don't want to talk politics with your friends, especially if you're from like different political views. A lot of times in today's kind of environment, politics, it's either you're one or the other and there's no kind of meeting in the middle anymore. So I understand not wanting to talk about politics. I understand not talk, wanting to talk about religion, but there's really like money conversations. You can learn a lot from money and how people treat money, what their relationship is with money, and you can learn from it good and bad. So I think today we're going to talk about some of these awkward conversations that you might have with friends and um, some different scenarios that, that go with it. And I know I get asked about money a lot, and I know you do too, Elias. Yeah, I do. Um, and I think one of the, you know, to me, these kind of topics that make people f feel awkward or maybe you don't want to talk about it, a lot of times I think it's the approach of how you talk about it. Um, and, and just, I can use myself and tell some stories. So I get asked a lot of questions about investing. What are you thinking? What are you doing? And I do, I, I make an effort to kind of meet people where I feel like their understanding is, and then provide some insight that I think will be valuable to them. But ultimately there's certain, there's certain things I will not like come off like our philosophy of how we invest money. If I'm in a conversation um, and someone like market timing, I'm happy to talk with someone about that, but I'm not going to shy away from the fact that I don't believe that can be done. And I think you're, I think it's a foolish proposition to believe that you can, that you can manage your money that way. I wouldn't probably tell someone, Hey, that's a, that's a foolish way to think about your money. I would say it more eloquently than that. But you know, I think the way you approach it, and then also if you're open, if you have an open mind to ideas um, and just in an open mind to doing things, um, I think, so like crypto is one. I'm always open to have that conversation, but if people ask me, have you ever purchased it? Have you ever owned it? I have not personally, and I probably, I probably never will. I don't see the real to me, I don't see the, the true um, utility in it for me as a person when I'm convicted in owning stocks and participating in wealth creation. Um, and I obviously believe in America and the businesses that operate here. So yeah, I think the approach to the conversation is very important. I always have an open mind if someone's going to explain to me what their trading strategy is or why they believe they can buy a stock and let it go up. I'm open-minded to that. And there are people that are good at that. Very few. And there's very few professionals who are good at that. So I always stay convicted in, in my 
core investment belief, but that doesn't mean I won't listen to somebody else. It doesn't mean somebody else might might be right. I just haven't seen, like you said, a whole lot of evidence that people can actually go out there and time the market and pick a bunch of really great stocks all the time and figure out when to buy and sell them. Some of the things I do is I'll follow like different chat boards just to see what people are talking about money wise. And here's some of the scenarios I've found that might be awkward or people felt were awkward and were looking for advice. So let's let me just jump into scenario one and I'm going to read this. This actually came from Reddit. It said my friend group is made up of mostly dual income households, but I'm single. While I make decent money, I have student loans and other financial responsibilities and don't seem to have as much extra money to spend as everyone else. My friends don't hesitate when the idea of a trip, fancy dinner, expensive outing comes up. I enjoy spending time with them, but I don't want to go into debt to do it. I think that we're going to talk about this and what, what your thoughts are, Elias. But I think the good news about this, this question this person's asking is I don't want to go into debt to do it. That's the right mindset to have. And when you look at what your friends are doing, they're her friends or his friends. I don't know. It doesn't say if it's a guy, boy, guy or a woman. Um, they may be going into debt to do all of this. So the mirage of, hey, they can afford this really isn't there. They might not be able to afford it. They're just doing it because they want to enjoy kind of these lavish things in life. That, and, and that is true because there are, and we know this very well, um, you may know someone who has very nice house, very nice vehicles, um, they may also have a lot of debt, so they can afford that lifestyle. I think here's what I really enjoy about this question. I, th- I think this is getting at the kind of the lifestyle budget things that we talk about. So this person clearly doesn't want to take on debt to, they don't want to live beyond their means. That's my interpretation of, I don't want to go into debt to enjoy these things, but you could start to define your lifestyle budget. And if let's say this year going on a trip that your friends are talking about is something you really want to do, and it's not going to stop you from saving your money and investing the way you should be, you won't have to take out debt to do it, or you can put together a plan to do that, then reward yourself with that, make it a priority to have that cash available and do it. And you may have to, let's say you get invited to a fancy dinner every weekend between now and then you may have to say no to some of those. I'm never going to tell someone say no to all of them. I know you can, you can go out to eat a couple times and still accomplish your goals. Well, first thing that comes to mind here is let's just talk about out to eat just because they're going to a fancy dinner. If you want to join them, doesn't mean your dinner has to be fancy. If you look at most restaurant menus, they have a soup or a salad. You don't have to drink fancy cocktails. You can still go enjoy the company if that's what you so choose to do on your own budget. Um, Yeah, I I know people that there's a joke with someone in our friend group. They said, man, I didn't know somebody likes sandwiches as much as you. Well, you know the reason they they get the sandwich every time we go out to eat? They're picking the cheapest menu option. It's not a bad thing. They no. just don't enjoy spending money going out to eat, but they want to be around their friends. So they're saying, hey, what's the lowest cost menu option that I could have? Because the food's not really that important to me. It's the friendship and camaraderie. So Right. So that's a good. 
that, could go that's look a good at, way to approach that. Even the fanciest restaurants, they have a soup option. Okay, it might be $9. Maybe it's overpriced for soup, but you still get to go and enjoy it. You don't have to walk out with a $200 bill like your friends. But that said, I, I think when you're having these conversations with family or friends, if you share what your goals are with them, and they're much more understanding. So what I mean by that is if you approach your friends and say, Hey, you know what? That really sounds like fun. I'd really like to do that. But right now I'm laser focused on paying off these student loans so I can really afford to do that. They're not going to think poorly of you because you don't want to go to the fancy restaurant. In fact, they may actually say, Hey, let's go, let's go to the lower cost restaurant you can afford to go to so we can hang out they may not know what your financial situation is or your goals. And you know what? They probably don't know. So I think if you just have an open ended conversation with your friends about what your goals and priorities are, they'll really understand, you know, they might think you're weird. In fact, you know, I think about Dave Ramsey, those people go on rice and beans and beans and rice. They don't do any of this stuff, but when they tell their friends what they want to do, if they're really good friends, they're going to understand. And they're going to be highly supportive of what you're trying to accomplish. They will. And I think you'll find if you, you know, if you're honest with the conversation, um, I think you're going to find that other people in your group probably feel similar. I mean, most of the time, especially if if you're within your own age group, almost everyone's kind of in the same boat or the same ballpark anyway, um, financially. I mean, there's obviously outliers. There's people who are not as successful, people who are more. And I think friends will come around to to the things you want to do and accommodate. And, and ultimately, maybe there's some expense things you can't do, but the time, and anyone can spend some time with people without, without spending money. And I, that's something I, with, with a young family, so I have three little kids, my time is very limited and I get some pushback in a fun way, right? From friends that I have, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about other people. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> but I've been asked, oh, I don't see you as much anymore. Um, so I try to make time for people when I can, but there's also the reality of my situation where time with my family is priority over seeing a college buddy. And that'll shift at some day, right? Like when my kids are growing up and adults, I'll have more time for those friendships that maybe I didn't have as much time before. But I think if everyone's just honest with each other about what's going on, that there can be a reasonable, a reasonable path for everyone. So scenario two, this, I guarantee you, this has happened to you. It's happened to me. It's happened to Molly. It's happened to everybody. And I'm just going to summarize it a little bit. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but you go out to dinner with a group of your friends and they bring one check. So your buddy throws down the credit card, everybody, yeah, well, we'll all pay you back, we'll split it. Well, this this group decided that that's what they're just gonna do every month and just alternate it around. But there's one person in the group that feels awkward asking their friends to pay them back. And number two, th- this person makes more money than everybody else, so some of the friends feel like they don't have to oh, pay them back. Weird. So. It, basically asking, how do I handle this situation? And I'm going to tell you how I handle this situation. If I put my credit card down, I'm expecting nobody's paying me back. Yeah. And I think that's the only way to handle it. If 
if you want to get paid back, just tell them to pay at the time. Tell your friends, be like, here's a deal. You put your car back, no one's paying me back. It's kind of like the gifting thing. If you gift money to somebody, or if, if somebody comes to me and needs to borrow money, I'm expecting that I never am getting paid back. And the reason I do it is I can't be let down. My expectation was level set. You know my expect when I set expectations, I set the lowest possible expectation for everything in my life. You know, I go to Disney, it's gonna be the worst trip ever. Yep, I put my credit card on, no one's paying me back. If you go into it with that, you can't be disappointed. My wife started doing this. She's like, this is great. Everything's always better than I thought. I go, yeah, it is if you expect the worst. <laughs> yeah, because you're and setting I, yourself up for worst case scenario. But I'm not a pessimist, just if you think about it. Yeah, but you don't want it to bother you don't want it to bother you later. So if you decide ahead of time you're not going to let it bother you, then it's never going to bother you. Like I go out to lunch with lots of people and I like to, I like to buy. I don't ever expect them to give me a dollar. I would never ask them for a dollar. I like when you buy lunch for me. I like that. It happens quite a bit. <laughs> but I like to do it. And I yep. never expect money back. I wouldn't ask somebody, you know, if we want to split the check, guess what we're going to say? We'll take two checks. Yeah, so that's where I was going to be. If, if if everyone's splitting, just split the bill. Um, so I know me, if I'm going to pay, if I'm paying for everyone, I'm just paying. I'm not going to ask anybody for money. Now, this situation where it's a big group of friends, I'll just tell everyone right now, if I'm with all of my like college friends and we're out to dinner, I'm not paying for those guys. Um, if someone else wants to pay and expect everyone to pay back, I'll do that. I'm paying right away. I'm getting my bill paid back to that person. Because, you know, you're going to get stuck with the majority of the bill if you try to, like, sort it out. I've been there, too. Yeah, and I just don't have – this might sound bad. I don't have confidence in those guys to follow through. So <laughs> I hope they're watching the show a lot. <laughs> I hope so, too. They know. They do. They know. They they know. Um, uh, so that that's where I would be. But, one, I don't want anyone to ever think, oh, Eli owes me for lunch one day three years ago like that's not going to happen i'll participate in something like this i'm just not going to be the one financing and i in our group we do have a friend who much more successful than everyone else early on and he's done some stuff like this and then you hear stories about being on payment plans with friends and i'm like dude i am not getting involved with a payment plan to you you can pay for everything here's your money right now Um, uh so i just avoid that whole situation step scenario three this is a really good one so this is more of an awkward money conversation with a significant other or soon to be significant other but the question was asked i've been dating my girlfriend for five years now i plan on proposing in the next year i think i'm good with money i have no debt i'm investing 18 percent of my income into the 401k and i have a healthy amount of money saved that i plan to use for an engagement ring towards a down payment on a house and the wedding and other things However, I'm pretty confident my girlfriend is in a bad financial situation and has a lot of debt. I went to the same college, so I know how much tuition was, and her parents weren't able to pay for school. She has a good job, but I don't think it's enough to support her loan payments and her lifestyle. She is big on keeping up appearances. Well, you want your fiance to keep her appearance up. <laughs> Just saying that that's a lifestyle investment. The rent on her apartment is almost double what mine is. And every time I see her, she has lots of packages, has just been shopping online or is wearing new clothes. I don't mind helping her pay off some of her debt if we get married, but I want to know what I'm getting into before I do. How do I bring up the topic? 
This is a great question is, because yeah, this is this could potentially be a slippery slope here. You got to get this figured out before you get married. Yeah. And and I know when I married my wife, we actually had to go to a class at the church, six weeks long. It's two hours a week for six weeks, and part of the class was you know like financial. And they said, hey, today you need to disclose everything financial to your soon-to-be spouse. And, you know, we were in college. We pretty much knew what everybody had. It wasn't like you know, we got married our senior year of college, so we hadn't had the chance to accumulate, like, a whole lot of debt other than just student loans. We didn't make any money. <laughs> I mean, we were just getting out of college. So it was pretty easy for us. But there were other couples in this this class that had no idea what their soon-to-be spouse had. And if you don't get this ironed out, if you're if you're, you're the person kind of marrying into the debt, if you guys don't get it ironed out initially and have a plan to deal with it, it's the reason financial issues are the number one reason for divorce in America. It, it is. And marriage ultimately is going to be work at times and there's a lot of challenges especially you start a family there's a lot of challenges outside of money that it, you just adding the money thing it just to me it's like fuel on the fire we're, we're very fortunate my wife and i are very aligned financially it probably has a lot to do with how we grew up um how our parents taught us to treat money and stuff like that but i, I think the best thing a conversation's a good start. I think if both people understand, it sounds like they're kind of on opposite ends. It's going to take time to get to the get to the middle and get to something that works for both. Because someone who's like a real big spender and someone who's a real big saver, you can't just change those habits overnight. But if both people can compromise, and it's going to be you compromise a lot in a marriage, so this would be a good start and get some sort of plan together to be more aligned. And I would definitely want to go into the attitude with, well, we're going to do it my way because that's not going to that's not going to work out well. I think if I was this individual, I, I would have the expectation that I'm going to help her clean this up because you clearly love this person. Like if you're going to marry her. You just say, hey, let's figure out how to clean it up and not get back to this spot. And maybe it's you got to take some financial courses. There's financial courses you could take. You could take Dave Ramsey, Financial Peace University, and get on the same track with that person from a money standpoint. But at the same time, if you can't get on the same wavelength with money, you may have to reassess the situation. I'm not saying don't help your soon-to-be spouse, but... If they want to be in debt and you're, you don't want to be in debt, you guys are going to fight about money all the time. Everybody views money differently. Everybody has a different take on how, what they want to do in life and what's important to them. So you got to get that figured out. Scenario four, my husband and I have been married for seven years. We're both 35. I've worked as a financial advisor since I was in high school. My parents' financial advisor helped me open a Roth IRA when I first started working and has helped guide me with the decisions in my 401k at work. My husband, on the other hand, manages his own investments. He does a great job setting aside money. He contributes a significant amount to his 401k, and outside of that, he has a Roth IRA and brokerage account he manages himself. He recently suggested that we start investing in a joint account, and while I'm open to the idea, I would prefer to use a financial advisor, but he has already said he wants to manage the funds himself. 
how do I approach him about using a financial advisor? I suggested he meet with my advisor when he opened Roth IRA a few years ago, but he didn't think a financial advisor was necessary until retirement. Good question. And there are some people that can do this themselves, but there's an old adage, you don't know what you don't know. And that's why you work the financial advisor. I, I, I interviewed a new couple a couple weeks ago and they'd never worked with anybody. They're getting ready to retire. They'd never worked with anybody. But as I started running through all of the things that we could help them with, and none of them, none of those had anything to do with an actual investment or rate of return or anything. It's just all the other stuff, backdoor Roth IRAs and tax issues and all these different things I started thinking about. We're halfway through the conversation. They're like, yeah, now I know why we need to hire you. We never talked about an investment. In this situation, the husband doesn't know what he doesn't know. And investing in a Roth IRA or a 401k is completely different than an individual account because you have tax issues in an individual account or a joint brokerage account that you need to address. For example, I promise you somebody listening to this podcast right now had an account that went down in value but still had to pay tax on 15, 20, 30, $40,000 of capital gains. Why is that? Because they own a mutual fund and had a capital gain distribution. And they're asking themselves, why would I have to pay tax if the market went down? Well, there's trades replaced inside of there. You still have to pay the tax and the winners that may have been in there a long time. Most people opening up a joint brokerage account don't understand what a capital gain distribution is from a mutual fund company. And that's why you work the financial advisor. My guess here is the spouse is only looking at the cost of having an advisor and he's looking at, as, looking at it as just a cost. He's not looking at it. This is the added benefit of having an advisor. And he probably doesn't even know how much it costs to work the financial advisor. Yeah, probably does not. Um, and, and those are all the things that I would be curious about. Like what's the, you know, what's the time, the desire and the knowledge the person wants to put into it. And um, I've got another recommendation. Here's what I would do. Hmm. If you can't convince your spouse to do it and you want to open an in, a joint brokerage account, and let's say you're going to put $2,000 a month into this thing. Okay, do it yourself or you get a thousand, you're going to run this joint account and I get a thousand around with my financial advisor. And in five years, we're going to figure out who did better and that's who can manage the money. I like that. I mean, that's a compromise. You that's Just a when compromise you talk about compromise, it doesn't sides. have to be all or none. Let's see who did better. And maybe in, there's not enough information here. Maybe he's done really well in his 401k. So he believes that he can outperform the advisor. But the other thing you have to look at here is what's the risk parameters? Because I've had people come in here before. They're like, well, the 401k did better than what you're doing. Well, yeah, you have 100% stock in your 401k because you're doing that yourself. And you have 30% fixed income and 70% stock here. When the market goes up, of course, you're going to outperform. But when it goes down, you're going to massively underperform the 70-30 portfolio, whatever somebody has. So I would probably try to flip this conversation into how do we compromise on this? You want to keep doing it? You get half the money. I get half the money in five years. We're going to figure out how to, how to have it all be one. Or maybe you just keep doing 
separately, but it can still be a joint account that different people manage. It can. Uh, the other, I guess another, I would suggest in this situation, if you're, even if you're going to manage it, I think disclosing to your spouse's financial advisor, at least what you have and how you're investing would be a good exercise too. Cause then at least that person can understand how to help give your family advice. Or if you're not willing to share those things, there's really no insight into how you're investing, what, what your philosophy is, and then any sort of financial planning or anything. So I, I think I would, and I would think most firms would be open to that, at least disclosing what you have. I, I tell everyone, sometimes we bring on a family, they might want to keep one account that they manage for themselves for a hobby or whatever reason it might be. I would at least like that disclosed. I want to understand the total picture, right? So I think maybe at least letting them know what's going on. What's the next one? Well, here's the last thing I'm going to say about that. Regardless of what they do, those people will probably be successful because their goal here is to save more money. So whether the financial advisor does it or the do-it-yourselfer does it, it's a good move to save more money. I wouldn't get caught up in the minutiae. If, if your husband insists or your wife insists that you have to have a financial advisor or do-it-yourself, don't let that stop you from setting aside more money. That shouldn't be like a barrier of doing this for this for this family. No. So here's another another awkward money conversation. And this one is money conversation with parents. So in the, in this scenario, the parents are getting older. Um, they've been closed minded about talking about money, which is more common for older generations. And, and then there's an example. When I was 18, I asked my dad if they had a credit card just out of curiosity, and, and he told me it was none of my business. So now fast forward, the parents are looking to get power of attorney in place and assign their kids that responsibility. And the kids think that they should know some about their financial situation to help them navigate decisions and conversations in the future that are going to need to be made. And, and I agree with that. I think family should understand the financial outlook, understand the wishes of the parents, especially if you're, because if you're giving someone power of attorney, they can sign documents for you. There might be limitations on everything that they can do, but for the most part, they can help you facilitate almost every transaction that you would need to complete and how they need guidance. If you've never had a conversation about your wishes, there's no guidance to the decisions. And there's also no, there's no playbook or there's no just um, in general information that says, hey, when you're POA for your parents and this happens, you do this. It's unique to every situation and every family. So I think they're going to want and appreciate some level of guidance when, when that time comes. I think the key here is it's not just a pop-up question. And what I mean by that is you just can't say, hey, like the first question they said they asked is, do you have a credit card? That just puts somebody on the defensive. You know, we always frame things in different ways, like what has to happen? Like if this happens, what has to happen for you to, for you to feel good about it? Put, put the conversation to their hands and be very prepared because it's an, especially if your parents aren't open-minded about this, be clear and kind in your tone. Ask what their plans are. Just all those things to get them to open up. But if you just say, hey, how much money do you have? That, that just puts somebody on the defensive. 
you know, what has, if you get sick, what has to happen for you to feel comfortable about your money? Like they'll start to open up about what they want. And that's how you ease into this versus how much money do you have? How much do you have a your, credit card? How much of your money do I get in the future? Well, that's what that's it, my favorite question. That, that's what it sounds like. But people, <laughs> here's the thing, Elias, people don't actually understand. That's what they're being interpreted at. So that's why just right. be really clear and concise about what you're trying to accomplish here because you don't want this to go sour. And, you know, to the older generation look, listening to this, you should have discussions about what you want to have happen to your money and how much you have. Because if you don't, what's going to happen to your money is what your beneficiaries choose to have happen and not what you choose to have happen. That is correct. You know, you need to have discussions about this. And I, I don't understand why families are so closed off about talking about it. Because if you, when you pass away, if nobody knows what's out there, nobody knows your wishes, I promise you there's going to be hurt feelings somewhere along the line. Oh, we, feelings are going to get hurt no matter what. You almost cannot avoid The that. better job you do of planning, hey, this is what I want to have happen with this money, the fewer feelings are going to get hurt. We've had an old story here, or old adage, the easiest way to break up a family reunion is throw a $100 bill on the floor. And that's true. Like I can go case after case where we have this strong family unit. There's no communication about what was going to happen with the money. Mom and dad die. Kids don't talk. And I don't think there's any parent out there that don't want their kids to get along after they pass away. And it's really sad if it's about money because you didn't want to open this line of communication up with your family to tackle the problem while you're still here. Versus letting the kids duke it out when you're gone. I know once you're gone, it's not your problem, but I don't think that's how you, how you want to leave things. Yeah. And it is, it's sad and unfortunate when you run into some of those situations where someone feels it's unfair or someone didn't know what was going on. And so here, here's another good one. And this is conversations with, um, another family conversation. So the scenario is we had an older sister move back to a hometown, staying with a family member, her sister and, and and that person's spouse. And it's turning into an extended stay and not just a few weeks. And the, the person who's hosting heard the sister talking at a family get together and saying, well, I think I'm gonna plan on staying there for several more months because it's helping me save money and they live in an area with high co cost of living. So now the spouse wants to charge the person rent um, and wondering how to bring this up. And I think this is, I, you're gonna have to be clear and honest about it, but I can totally understand this situation. I feel like when you're a guest in someone's in someone's home, you're a guest and then there's like this fine line where you're starting to become a tenant. And if you're in that area of becoming a tenant, it's totally fair for them to ask you to help out. Like you shouldn't be, if they're providing all the food, the roof over your head and all this, it, yeah, you might be able to save a little bit of money, but you should be chipping in. Here, here's how I ta tackle this. I had cousin live with me for a year. I wouldn't charge him rent. Like, I think if you invited one of two, there's two paths here. It's like gifting money. You, you shouldn't, have, when you said you could move in, you shouldn't have expected anything in exchange. If you want her out. Did you put a timeline on how long? I knew he was going to be there for a year. 
going into it. Yeah. Okay, but that's that, different. This no, is no, no, no. This was this was I want to stay with you for a couple of weeks, and yeah, now no. it's turning into you didn't eight let me, months. You didn't let me finish. Okay. Uh, there's two there's two roads here. One, you keep living, letting her live there rent free, or you give her a timeline when she needs to be moved out. But charging her family rent, I mean, think about it. The animosity that it's going to take. Say, well, could you pitch in a hundred bucks? You're living there either way. You don't have any, you know, maybe you say, hey, could you grab these things at the grocery store? That doesn't mean you have to say, you need to pay me X dollars a month. Like if it wasn't hurting you financially three months ago, it's not hurting you financially today. So this is just what this really is. This is a case of the husband wants the sister to move out. Yeah, I agree. So, and so I'm saying it's fair. I'm not. I'm not saying this is how I would handle the situation. Well, I'm know. saying it's fair. It's fair, but to charge to charge the person they're living at your house. I'm saying that that's not with that's not outside of reason. If you want to keep your family unit and not get in a fight, the easiest thing to do is not charge rent or give a deadline on when they need to move out. Be like, hey, we need to get back to our normal family life, and you know you're going to need to find your own place to stay because here's what's really happening: the sister is taking advantage of the situation here. The only reason she's still living there is because she wants to keep saving more money. And her right and right. Her, but her I choices are starting to negatively impact. Right. The, the husband just unit. wants the sister out of the like he's ready to take his life back. I knew my cousin was staying with me for a year. We had a great time. I didn't have any kids. It wasn't a big deal. Like stayed in the basement. I knew it was coming down the I pipe. Think that's, I think we're comparing apples and oranges now. Well, would you, okay, but like your cousin can live with you for a year now down in the basement and you got a family and all that? Depends on why it was. If it's for him to save more money so he doesn't have to spend it. That's a no. The answer is no. Yeah. Like, hey, you need 30 days, fine. But you can't just live here. It's like moving back home and you're 35 years old. And, you know, you, you know what I mean? Like stepbrothers, like, oh, we're going to live here because we don't want to do anything. Like, that's not an option. But I think the best thing to do is just set a timeline of when you need to move out. And I just think that I, I look at this just like family borrowing money. If they if I'm going to give somebody money, my expectations, I'm not getting paid back. I'm not going to ask for it back. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was trying to be nice and say, yeah, this is a reasonable solution. What you're saying is the husband should just kick his sister-in-law out of the house, make her leave. Just say, have a conversation with the wife and say, hey, look, I'd like to take our life back. Can we give a deadline on when she needs to be moved out? Because at this point, according to this, it's really just about she'd like to stay and save more money. Yeah, you're not really helping. It's not helping. It's not just offering help anymore. Yeah, like I feel you living with me like you just need, you know, okay, you're in me. Good example. About 10 years ago, not eight years ago, when we were building our house, we need a place to live. We moved with my in-laws. They didn't charge me rent. They knew when we were leaving. Now, did we help out and buy dinner and cook? Yeah. But there wasn't like rent, but they knew we were leaving. I think the husband's not so sure that the sister's ever leaving. He doesn't want a, another family member, a full-time <laughs> participant at the house. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, here's here's another good one. I think this happens probably to a lot of people. And these are the awkward money conversations at work. And this one's a good question how to handle this. I've been at my job for three years now, and I want to ask for a raise, but I don't know how to start the conversation. What do you think, Eli? How are you going to handle this? Because I'm not an employee, so how are you going to handle this? 
If you're here, Elias, if uh, yeah, you're here. Speaking of awkward conversations, we got to talk about this with the, the person I negotiate with every year on my salary. So how are you going to handle this? I'm going to just get prepared. And all everything you tell me here, I'm going to gear up <laughs> no. for the end of the year when you, you come, um, come knocking. Yeah. So I, I, I guess I can, I'm going to give some in general advice and then I guess I can be a little more specific. I think maybe asking questions like what are the goals what goals would you like me to accomplish if, if we accomplish those how much of what would that be worth to you I think those are good questions um this converse this conversation I don't feels that awkward because I I know what the goals of our company are and what we want to accomplish and I feel like I have at least an understanding of what the fair the fair value is of that um I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this. This is like a personal question. I'm, I'm using all your ammo against you. No, I think you're hitting it right. Number one, you have to, I think a lot of employers probably go to their employees and don't explain to them what the one year, three year, five year mission and goal is. So they don't really know like how they can add value or how they add extra value. Right. If you're if you're an employee and you're doing exactly the same thing you've done for five years, well, how much of a raise do you think you're going to get if you're still providing just the same value? But if you know what the goals of the company are and you're providing this additional value, that's what you go sell to the boss. Say, hey, look, what has to happen if we do X? How do I get to this pay level? Right. That's conversation. Yeah. What do I need to do to get to this pay level? And maybe it's yeah, there's extra education or some other performance based uh, metric to get there. But our industry is a little different. Like it's easier for me, like when, when we negotiate your pay to say, well, the company did X amount of new AUM and revenue. I can quantify it at some level back to the individual performance. You know, not all jobs are easy to quantify it back to individual performance. Right. And then there might be, there's probably also some limitations on that. I, I do think another thing, if you were going to ask for a raise, again, it's an approach thing too, where if I was going, like if I was going to have that conversation, I would mention it beforehand hey, I, I've been thinking about my compensation. There's a couple things I would like to talk about. Can we schedule a time to talk about that? I would not I would not go into someone's office and, hey, do you have time to talk about my compensation right now? That would be a, that would be a conversation I feel like would catch someone off guard. I've got a great example of this. I have a, a, a client friend, owns a company. Sale, they're sales related at some level. And he had a young guy come ask him, he goes, hey, you know, I want to get a pay raise. What do I need to do? That's how he approached it. And this sales guy was basically just managing relationships for the owner that he just turned over to him. And, you know, he's a young guy, wants to make a bunch of money. And he just flat out told him, when you start bringing in new customers, then we'll start talking about paying you that kind of money. Yeah, and that's a fair answer in that and situation. It was, but he told them, like, you need to bring in new customers. You know, this sales guy thought he was killing it because he was managing all, doing all this work. Well, yeah, but someone, the hard part's not managing the relationship. I mean, there's a role for that. Yeah. But in this case, the money was, the big money's made by bringing people in 
finding new customers. And he just laid out and said, when you start bringing in new customers and finding new customers for this company, then I can pay you that. So he quantified what needed to be done, not just keep working with the people I gave you. You got to bring customers in to get to that level. So I think that's how you, you handle that, that relationship or that, that um, overall discussion. So with that said, Elias, I, I think this is a fun show. If anybody has a question they want us to answer, you, you are thinking, hey, how would you guys handle this? More than happy to, uh, to answer it online and tell you what, what we would potentially do if we were you. You have any closing remarks, Elias? Uh, just say, I think if you have some difficult conversations, be open-minded and, and be honest and uh, professional about it. And I, I think you'll find the, I think you find a path that works for everyone. With that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. You can catch us at btwellshow.com. Look forward to talking to you next time. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional 